Uh, we are so thankful to be together and actually in the midst of all of this craziness, um, there is so much going on and I just wanna give a shout out to Pastor Kevin and the whole team. They have been working so hard and later on we'll take a photo of what we've turned my parents' den into um, as we've made sure <laughs> to take over their entire house. So we're thankful for their hospitality and making sure that everything's kind of working well for Spark on this Sunday. So we're glad to just have you all here. Okay, so the title of our message tonight is what is going on here? <laughs> uh, and the subtitle is Hope in the Chaos. So here we go. Um, it is slide number 69, and we're getting ready to start our message together. Um, as we prepare, let's just take a few moments and pray and center and gather our, our hearts and minds as we, as we get ready to worship God together through the study of his word. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to come together to be with you, to be with one another, even from afar and a distance. What a great privilege it is to live during a time with this type of technology um, and these types of resources to be able to stay connected and not feel so alone. God, we pray for those who are feeling so distant and isolated alone right now that um, as we're all gathered here together, that you would grow us all closer together as you grow us closer to you and that we would sense a bit more of your presence through our time here together this afternoon. We bless you for all these good gifts and thank you for this time together, amen. Okay, so um, I don't know if you figured out why we've titled our service, what we've titled it today, but what is going on here and hope in the midst of chaos is our title for our sermon today. Um, so we are looking at the, a few of the things that I don't know if you've had these thoughts this week, but these have been my thoughts. I have no idea what to do. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to do next, and I don't know what I'm presently doing. All of it just feels overwhelming and crazy. And so we wanted to stop for a moment and give voice to that feeling and say, I hope it's pretty normal. And particularly, I think that it's normal because none of us have done this before. This is a brand new experience for each one of us. So a few of us have spent a lot of time researching the entire week or weeks, every single thing we can find and research about the pandemic. We've, we've tried to figure out how best to wash our hands. We've looked at which song we wanted to wash our hands to. We've um, looked for like Total Eclipse of the Hearts, one of my favorites, or um, uh, Frere Jaca for rub tops and bottoms in between and all these other kinds of things. We figure all of these things out together. And then we also, um, maybe we start to wash our hands and we feel like we can't wash our hands. You start to wash your hands and then you are thinking, okay, they're all clean and it's fine. And then you touch the faucet and you're like, oh, I better wash them again. So then you, then you clean the faucet and then you accidentally touch your face. And so then you, you wash it. It just becomes to the point where our hands probably, I'm sure all of us are raw with the amount of times we've been washing and forcing our children to wash and figuring everything out. We're getting ready for how we do work in this new whole world. And so as we look at doing work, we're like, well, is the Zoom meeting going to have video or not? Because if it does not have video, I am not putting my clothes on and I'm not getting dressed. I'm just going to have pajamas. But if it has video, I got to get gussied up and fancy. So we have like these moments where we're trying to figure out work. Okay. And then, and then some of us have children at home and our children are now having to be homeschooled and we didn't sign up for that and never thought that we would be interested in doing anything like that. And so then their school books come home and we open up a kindergarten math page. And this is what it says. 
and we have no idea what to do with this thing. And so this woman writes this. This is in my daughter's math book as well. It's very confusing. What are you supposed to do? I have a PhD. I cannot for life me figure out what you're supposed to do on this kindergarten worksheet. And so then somebody tweeted helpfully, like, why is a coronavirus holding that pencil? Which it does look like a coronavirus is holding that pencil. And then, oh no, even the instructions don't know what's happening. And then somebody helpfully did solve it. And so then that, you know, just looks like this and the solve puzzle of how we figure that out. How do we do this new life? I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Some of us have feeling like we're going crazy and everything is wild and nuts. And this is how our entire week has felt. And some of us in the midst of all that are like, listen, everybody calm down. Things are going to be fine. Some of us are laughing. Others of us are crying. And some of us are shouting, we're all going to die. And it's just um, a frightening and scary time. And we just wanted to let you know that um, the Bible gives voice to all of that and that we are all processing grief and loss in these moments that we're striving to create new normals. I mean, that's what Spark is doing now, this whole weird new normal and all of that. We're trying to figure out what to do with this crazy new way of life that's changing, at least for now. And anxiety and grief is expected. Um, so it's okay to mourn those little things and big things. And I would just recommend pastorally that when those big feelings show up and they become overwhelming, just name them and welcome them. That radical welcome and Jesus is present and available and say, all right, grief, all right, anxiety, you're here and I'm just gonna ask Jesus to sit with you for a while because it's not, a lot of things are not okay. And even if you personally in your household right now are okay, many people are not. And so we feel all of those losses and griefs. So I have no idea what to do and I don't know what's happening and I don't know what to do next. Let's open up the Bible and find out if God has anything to share with us in moments like these. So this is all the way my favorite thing. This is like, you know, verse chorus and verse for me all the time is let's go back to the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning of our story in our Bible, things are set to right. They're the way that they should be. And God is dwelling with God's people and there's harmony between us and one another. There's no pandemic. There's no coronavirus. None of that is happening. And even then, as things start to get a little crazy, and within a sh few short verses, uh, a few, few short chapters, we have a brother killing a brother after the sneaky snake incident, and we have disharmony coming into the world, we still find God pursuing us and trying to figure out how to make a dwelling with us, even as we've lost the garden. As we get to the book of Exodus, ch Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, a mick." Dash, I may that I may dwell among them, and this is like that dwelling sense in the in the midst of all from the same Hebrew root. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the pattern of all its furnishings, so that you shall make it. And God gives Israel these instructions so that God can dwell in their midst, and so that Israel can have an experience with God themselves as well. Um, after Israel moves from not being so temporary in their dwelling places themselves with their tents and everything else, they move to buildings and so God needs a building too. And the first temple or house of God that's built in that area is the Temple of Solomon. And as we look at this temple and we try to understand how do temples function in the ancient Near East, there's a fantastic article by, by Dr. John Walton in this wonderful book called Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament. And he says this, that in the ancient Near East, the temple functioned as the dwelling place of God. It was the central and fundamental component of the cosmos. 
the centerpiece and function of identity of the community, and the principal mechanism for the interface between humans and the divine. And as God sat enthroned in the temple, the order established through creation was maintained, the forces th that threatened that order were held at bay, and the viability of human community was maintained. And this was true for all the ways that the different temples, not just the Israelite temple, but different temples were functioning in the ancient Near East, that we saw this, that people saw this as a time of if there was a temple and that God was present in that space, then order in the chaos, order was there, chaos was put at bay, and the cosmos itself was in the way it should be. So Solomon actually echoes some of this same type of thinking in his prayer in 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, as he prays and dedicates the temple of the Lord. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and plead for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. So there's this weird, amazing sort of paradox and dichotomy existing at the same moment where Solomon's like, listen, you're God of everything. You dwell everywhere. You can't live in a house that we built. And yet your presence somehow miraculously is here and we can we can have a moment here in this place. He continues on. He prays to God and says, may your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, the place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive us. So Solomon gives voice to this sort of reality. Now the Israelites did have these ideas in their temple worship. They understood that there was cosmic identity and order and that that, that temple that in Jerusalem established the link between heaven and earth. Um, they saw that this was God's presence, that God's sacred, holy place was there. They saw in all of this that there was a relationship focused, particularly in the Israelite temple um, and in Israelite theology. God loved his people and wanted to be in that loving relationship with God. And in the Israelite temple, there was no image to behold. So they really didn't think God lived there. It was just more of a place where we could experience God's presence. Finally, Israelite temple worship was very covenant focused. And if you recall from all of the covenants from way back to the first Noahide covenant and then Abraham and Sinai and the Davidic covenant and moving forward, then in each one of those covenant promises that God gives to God's people, God expects God's people to behave a particular way as a result of that covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then here are the things that you're going to do. Here are the things you should do, Israel, and here are the things that I will do. I will be faithful to you. And this is built on love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, as Pastor Mark just wonderfully led us in that number one commandment that Jesus teaches. So Solomon's temple is there, and all of Israel sees that as this is the symbol for God's presence in this world where we can access God, where we can experience God's presence. And in the middle of all that, the Israelites don't obey, right? They, the prophets warn that if they don't, they're going to be exiled from the land, just as the Canaanites were before, that the covenant um, is still present, but that they're breaking their version of the, their side of the covenant. And so the people refuse to listen. And as the prophets warn, then eventually 
In 597 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar, yes, that King Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he comes against Jerusalem in 597 BCE, and he takes captive 10,000 exiles, almost all priestly and upper class officials, um, including Ezekiel the prophet, and including the descendant of David, whose covenanting promise with God was to be able to stay on that throne. He takes King Jehoiakim and takes them all back to Babylon with them. Now you can see in our nice little map here how that functions in that time, how long Judah had to go to travel back to that Babylonian empire. And as they walk into that land, they start to see craziness that they've never seen before. This humble temple that Solomon had built does not look like this of what they find in Babylon. And as they walk by into as captives and exiles into this land, they start to see overwhelmingly gates made to other gods, to Ishtar, to all of the people above that as they walk through, they're like just amazed at what is happening in Babylon. They are overwhelmed at the Babylonian worship of their gods, and they have to start asking the question, is our God still in charge? What is happening? We can actually still see these gates that were found there from Babylon in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin today. They are massive and amazing. Actually, I think they might be on display in New York. Virtually, all of us can see them virtually right now because I think all of museums are online. So just go ahead and have a virtual online experience and check out these amazing gates that were found in Babylon. So in the middle of all that, as Ezekiel is prophesying and saying, be careful, you guys, we have things we have to be attending to. The temple still stands, but it may not stand forever. In 586 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the temple. And the place where God's people gathered and the place where they saw God's order in the world is gone. Ezekiel describes this in a vision before it even happens in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. He says that he sees the glory of the Lord departing from over the threshold of the temple and that it stops above the cherubim, the winged creatures. So it's like God's leaving, but God doesn't want to, that God's presence pauses in that moment. And as Ezekiel watches in this vision, he sees the cherubim spread their wings and rise from the ground. And as they go, the wheels go with them. And then they stop again at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. God's so hesitant to leave God's house, but the presence of God is leaving. Um, and the glory of the Lord goes up from within the city. And again, it stops on the mountain east of it. That'd be the Mount of Olives. And as the people have been taken to the east, God's presence is also moving with the people. And the Spirit lifts them up, lifts up Ezekiel and brings him to the exiles in Babylonia. And the vision, this is the vision that he's given um, by the Spirit of God in this place. Now, John Walton talks about what would happen then as a community. What happens to the community when they start to experience this sort of chaos where the very place where they can go and worship God and have that continuity is gone. And he says that because of the role of the temple as the cosmic nexus, if the temple is not maintained and it's God sustained, the cosmos then is the cosmos is in jeopardy and subject to collapse. In this way, the threat of the temple dissolution would be considered as having a similar impact to that which we connect to today with nuclear devastation, radical climate change, or the worst imaginal effects of pollution, i.e. the apocalypse. And we were just, i.e. a pandemic and the coronavirus 19, right? That there are, that there's something that has caused such a disruption in our lives that what felt normal and what felt like north, true north for us, what was right up is gone. 
And the Bible speaks to this experience because the Israelites had similar experiences to this as well. They also had to say, I have no idea what to do. And I don't know what's happening. And I don't know what to do next. Ezekiel in the midst of this gives this hope then in Ezekiel chapter 11. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Ezekiel notes that through God's words, that God goes with the Israelites into exile. That God goes with us into exile and that God is a sanctuary still. That everything has changed, but also nothing has changed. That the presence of God, the glory of the Father, left and departed that temple as God's people did and went with us into exile and has been a sanctuary for us in those places. And I know we're in the middle of an Ephesians series, but all of that just got sent out the window this week when everything happened. And right now we just thought we want to know the good news that God is still with us and that God goes with us as we are displaced and isolated and far from the routines that help us feel connected with God and with one another. The early followers of Jesus asked all these questions too. It wasn't just the ancient Israelites. See, I think life probably felt pretty easy for them in the midst of stories when they would just be walking around with Jesus. They would be sitting there and saying, hey, uh, Jesus is with us and he's told us very clearly Here's what to do. Go collect a whole bunch of basketfuls and feed the 5,000. Okay, Jesus, we've got that. We know what to do next. You're with us, right? Or Jesus would push out from a boat and start to teach. And they could say, we know what to do next. You're with us. Even as things got a little bit crazy in the final week of Jesus's life in Jerusalem, as he enters in to a palm branch Sunday filled with all these crazy meanings and all these symbolisms, there was still, even in the midst of that challenge, some more instruction, right? Jesus was still with them. And he was even telling them, I'm not going to be with you much longer, but don't worry. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit with you and you won't be alone. I won't leave you as orphans and I'll be with you. But then as his bodily resurrection happens at the tomb and the women are looking in and the, the disciples are confused and we're all trying to figure out what's happening, they're all asking these questions too. So then surely Jesus will be back soon, right? Yes, we saw him. He was resurrected. You know, Thomas touched his finger, his wounds, his hands, his feet, his side. We know he'll come back soon. But then the ancient early, you know, ancient Christians in this scenario, they don't see Jesus coming back as soon as they've expected. And they have to rework this all out again. What happens then when we're persecuted? What happens when Rome is brutal and just doing horrible things to all the followers of Jesus. What happens then when Rome destroys the temple in 70 CE? And I think that Paul, going back to our Ephesians series just a little bit and stepping on somebody's toes in a chapter to come, gives some voice to this too. He says, you know, when these things happen, like when all of this in chaos, you, the people of God, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by God's spirit. We've taught about this passage a lot and we'll continue to teach on it more in depth. But the idea that at least we know that God goes with us, 
that God dwells within the praises of God's people. And that as these things change and shift, and as we don't find ourselves all gathered together in the same room, and we don't know when that will change, we know that we are bound together through the blood of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and because God has chosen to dwell amongst us in God's people. So where is God in the midst of this, and who are we now? Y'all, we are still spark. We are still sparky. We are still the church. Our values remain. Nothing has changed with that. Our mission remains. We will still be trying to seek all of the ways to inspire people to live the way of Jesus in the world in this current context. Our values of figuring out how to love one another, how to love those who are most desperately in need, how to bring rescue into the world and reconciliation and the reputation of God and yes even resurrection that core belief that what we see here today is not all that there will be but there was there's life after even exile after even death we have these hopes all of these things still remain and while we create and adapt and recreate to a new normal we also look forward to a coming day when we gather together again. Ezekiel is really keen on making sure that we don't forget that we will return to a new and renewed and glorified temple of God. And, and Ezekiel sees the presence of God coming back from the east and coming back to God's house. He says this in Ezekiel 43, then the man brought me to the gate facing east and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kiba River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east and the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Ezekiel has this beautiful vision and anticipation of coming back again that yes while exiled and by the banks of this river in babylon god goes with us into exile and god is a sanctuary for us here do not despair and don't get too comfortable because we have an anticipation that we are gonna go back and it will be glorious and we're already planning a big spark party whenever that happens now in the midst of all of this, we still find ritual and tradition and liturgy binding us together. All of the things that we did at the beginning of our Spark service that we do together every week and all of the things that we're going to do at the conclusion of our Spark service that we do together every week. You see, when we take communion together, we remember something that happened a long time ago and we celebrate a meal together right now in this present moment as well. But we're also rehearsing for the banquet that is to come. Three things happen in this moment when we take communion. We're binding ourselves together to the church of history for the last 2,000 years. We're binding ourselves together and joining in this banqueting moment together right now in this moment as we all together take the bread and take the juice or the wine. And together we practice for when we're in a room together again, and we see the glory of the Lord filling that place and we find ourselves together. We do this to remember. So Sparkers, remember, it was just a couple weeks ago we were together in the room and we did this together and we'll do it again, okay? And we'll remember and we're gonna practice. We'll remember and rehearse for what's to come. 
And if you're feeling lonely and sad and you want a pastor to cry with you, I'm your girl. I will cry with you. <laughs> and I will also help remember what is to come and where we will be there together again. And we're going to trust God. This does not come as a surprise and the word of God speaks to this moment. Do this in remembrance of all of that. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Spark, we invite you all. All are welcome at this table. It is not our table. It is his, and he has invited all of us together. Come and worship with us. To all of you Sparkers, wherever you are, however you may be joining us, may you know that regardless of the physical space, that the presence and the sanctuary of God is with you. And may you find comfort and peace and connection and joy in knowing that the very presence of God is with you in this moment. And may you also find joy and comfort and peace in knowing that the people of God people and the members of this community are with you as well. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.